0: been a joy over the last two months to really just gaze together at the beautiful and glorious truths of the solas. No matter how many times I have walked through or been led through that journey, it is always beautiful. It is glorious. Over the 17 years that we have been in Uganda, I've had the privilege at least yearly, many times twice in a year, to be able to walk men and women through those glorious truths. And it is rich, and it is stirring. And one of the reasons why I have felt that as a great privilege is because I find myself consistently forgetting. I don't know if you've ever felt a disconnect between what you know you've learned and what you know is true, and then the way you live your life. Last week, the other Keith drew our hearts and minds outside of ourselves to to see the the truths of the solas being lived out in our lives as salt and light. And that's encouraging because I forget so easily. I remember one specific group of men and women that I was being able to lead through this journey, and we spent over six hours just gazing at the glory of God, passage after passage after passage, reading over and over. Just, it was like a fire hydrant of God's Word, His glory, His name, and it was beautiful. And we came to the end of that, really a two-day trek, and we began to worship And that's a great thing to do when you've been gazing on the glory of God. And as we worshiped, one specific Ugandan woman just began to repent. I remember her just praying out loud and asking God to forgive her, that her world had been centered on herself, and that she was really even using God for her. And as she repented, others were repenting. And as I'm sitting there listening to this happening, I was thinking, oh, this is wonderful. Oh, thank you, God. This is good. And it was like this little whisper, what about you? And I was like, well, I'm good. I mean, I've taught the glory of God how many times. I love it. It's great. What about me? And as I sat there, God's spirit began to stir me. And I'll never forget him making as plain as day the reality of my passion for my name. And it was like a pierce in the heart that I would be more worried about what people would think of Keith or my reputation than God's reputation, what people would think about God. And it brought me into a very hard but sweet repentance, and it began a journey of repentance that has continued right to this very day. And I need to be stirred afresh because... By nature, I put myself in the center of my reality, of my world. And can you guess what happened after that rich time, about five months later, as life caught up to me and family was swirling around and ministry struggles and hearts of kids and our own things, and I actually remember thinking, I feel so far removed from the glory of God. Five months ago. It's like I went back into default mode to just of just living life. Don't get me wrong, I was praying, I was reading scripture daily, I was gathering with God's people. But the central driving passion of God's glory in his name wasn't at the forefront because that would have affected everything I was struggling with, everything. I was feeling. And so God brought me back into line, back into center. And I wonder if that's ever happened to you. Have you ever forgotten? Do you ever feel like there is a disconnect between what you know is true and how you are living your life? The gap between what you believe and how you live. The Bible warns against us being a people of great knowledge. Without reflecting or imaging or living out that knowledge, true knowledge, in the way that we live our lives. The Bible warns about having a knowledge without knowing God, and then without living out of that knowing. Of course, we go through seasons of that, all of us, but if it's a permanent disconnect, is a very dangerous place to be. The Apostle Paul actually warns us as God's people. He writes in 2 Corinthians 13 that we should examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. He says, Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Now, that's not our common language. We don't often test or examine. Why? Why do we fail often to examine ourselves? Why is that such a dangerous place? Because we as a people are so easily self-deceived. We are so quick to assume the best about ourselves. And that's what Paul warns against. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. And there are many types of warnings like this. It comes and just asks, have I tasted? Have I tasted the Lord is good? Do I long for his word as pure spiritual milk? Am I growing up into salvation? Am I maturing in Christ? First John, it's almost like the whole book is written as a great test to know whether we are truly in him, because to know God is to love your brother, and he's going to bring that out so clearly through the book, amongst many other things. But there's one book in particular that takes on this central question. Do we live in a way that's consistent with what we profess Do we reflect the gospel in how we live our lives? And that is the book of James. You can open up to James chapter one. We're gonna just look at one verse today. We're actually gonna spend a lot of time outside of James, but my hope for you is to to help this to come alive for us because it's going to, I hope, meet us in this place of often disconnect. And again, just draw us afresh to what it means to, to live the solas and to gaze on the, the beauty and the splendor of Christ and the glory of God in his face and to reflect that and to live it. Because that's what James is about. And James, often we can summarize, you hear people summarize his book really with one phrase. Faith without works is it's dead. James is absolutely passionate to see Christians living out the faith that they profess. This morning, we want to look at one key outflow of genuine faith, and it's one of many through Scripture. But I hope this encourages us and girds us up in the truths that we have beheld and confessed together. So before we come into James 1, let's just pray together. Father, you know our great need even as we've sung such beautiful, glorious truths. What a good Father. Lord, would you meet each of us in that place of need? You know where we're battling the disconnect. You know where the, the busyness and the struggles of lives are, our own passion for ourselves at the center. You know where that leads us, whether in sin, in pride, or just in neglect of what is good or best. Would you meet us and stir us as your body? Would you wash your bride this day through your spirit and your word as we behold you together for the glory of your name? Amen. And so, James, as we come in and just think briefly about the background, you know, he's writing to mainly Jewish Christians, but to all Christians. And these are Christians who have been scattered. Uh, outside outside of Jerusalem, and he's walking them through, really, how do you deal with trials, the challenging things that we face in life, because they are many. He talks about asking God for wisdom and how to live the life that God calls us to live. At the heart of that is just that central truth, that genuine faith, and notice that word genuine, right? It's genuine faith must have an outflow of action. We cannot live a disconnected life. Repentance will consistently bring us back to center as we confess Christ and our need for him together. And we get a glimpse of this in James 1, verse 22, when he simply writes, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. There's that self-deceit imagery. That's one of my greatest fears. If You say, Keith, what are you most afraid of? One of my answers will be that I would be self-deceived, that I would think I'm one thing or that I'm fine, I'm good, when in reality I am not, to the point where I wouldn't even have ears to hear those who love me or know me or see me point out the reality, even as we talked in in the covenant of those who stray, or of my own straying heart. I don't want to be one who is self-deceived. I want to know the Word, and love the Word, and do the Word. And so the warning comes, don't be a hearer only, because it's so easy for us as a group, as a body, to gather and hear, and go and live our lives. In verse 26, he gives this same type of image when he says, "If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless." Well, right off the bat, you might go, "Well, religion, religion. You know, we think of religion as a very negative." term. And often in West Virginia, I've heard people say, I, want, I don't want religion. I want relationship. And uh, so we see it as this contrast of, of opposite, right, of what real relationship is. That's not how James views religion. Religion is very positive. It is the outflow of your confession of Christ and how you live that out. And so uh, a worthless religion is one who thinks he is religious, a true follower, confessor of Christ, but doesn't bridle his tongue. And really, that's just outflowing Jesus' teaching. That it's from the heart the mouth speaks. These two things are connected. And if 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 the mouth is speaking what is wrong or sinful or tearing down or counter to what God has shown as good and right and true, there are many passages we could visit. But if there's a disconnect, our hearts are deceived and our religion is worthless, holds no value, because a changed heart is going to be expressed in a changed tongue. And that could be the sermon of the day. We could just camp right there. But all of that is just to lead us forward, really into verse 27, because James wants to address what a genuine faith in Christ looks like. You can see it there on the screen. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. It's to visit orphans and widows and their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I like to check translations because the ESV actually, the older ESVs will translate different than the newer ones. And so I've got to see how the wording is as it compares. And that's very important, um, especially in this, in this verse. Um, but as we look at, as we just come into the text, you know, James he, he again is going to use this religion, right? Positively. Faith in Christ, lived out, that's pure and undefiled. What beautiful imagery. Because impure faith, or if we said defiled faith, is going to look like many things. But he doesn't use impure or defiled. He's going to go to the other side and say, this is pure. And if you've ever been in a place where you struggle with water that's clean. You definitely echo with water that's pure, and that word pure. You do not want to drink impure water. Um, and it, that's the word that Jesus uses in John 15 when he says already to, to his disciples, already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. You are pure. There is a cleansing. There is a purity. And so a religion that's pure, it's, it's not spoiled or polluted, It's undefiled. It's it's not contaminated, often by mixing with those things that God has said are not good, not of him or of the world. Pure and undefiled religion. Actually, if you go to the very end of verse 27, he actually is going to kind of catty corner these two things. It's pure and undefiled religion. Look at the end. To keep, it's really to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's to not let the world dictate how you think, how you view yourself and others, what you value, what you pursue. It's almost like James is yelling out, hey, don't let the world pollute you. Don't let the world be your shaper and definer. There is something greater. There is something better. And so out of that contrast, pure and undefiled, don't let the world stain you. Keep yourself unstained from the world. It's going to package really the positive side of what is pure and undefiled religion. What is it? See, because the wrong source is going to bring the wrong outflow. But the right source, which is God, is going to bring the right outflow. And look where James directs us. Again, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. It's to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Positive. Positive. Keep yourself unstained from the world. And so the flow is coming from the God who is Father. The ESV that we have on the screen translates it before God the Father. If you have an older ESV, it'll read like mine. It says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this. Now, I'm guessing they changed it because You don't want people thinking these are two different people, that it's God and the Father. And so it's easier to just say, before God, the Father. And yet James, as he writes the letter, he writes it in a very unique structure. I mean, you could translate it, really, before the God and Father. He's emphasizing something here. There's an emphasis on the Father who is God and the God who is Father. And so why not just say pure religion before God? Because there is a very crucial and intimate link between God's fatherhood and how that fatherhood is reflected or is lived out. It's something very unique to the relationship as it relates to orphans and widows. So what comes to your mind when you hear the term or the word Father? For Some, it's a painful memory. For others, it's joyful. For some, it's, it's a mix of, of both. I'll never forget one sweet, sweet friend that we met in Uganda. She came from India to go through our training. And when she sat in the room and we began to talk about James 1 and some of the glorious truths of the gospel, she confessed to us. She said, you know what? I'm good with Jesus. Like, me and Jesus, yep. That's all I need. Just give me Jesus. I'm good. But God as Father, that's scary. It's almost terrifying. And even in coming to Uganda, that was the thing that made her the most nervous, was to think about or be confronted with the reality of the truth that God is a father. Now, some, some of us, we can contrast that with the other side where we've had good fathers, we can often just, yeah, of course, God's father. I grew up, my dad, good, a good father. You know, he, he, he gave his best. He wasn't perfect. He didn't have a father in his life growing up, but he loved us and he loved us well. And I, in church every week, would pray the Lord's prayer We would say together, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and we would walk through it. And it was just what you said. Yes, God, our Father, God the Father, God the Father. But his fatherhood was just there because I had my dad. Just comfortable. He's father. There's a difference between where Ruby was coming from, my Indian friend, and where I was coming from. And each of us have our own stories. And that, that word will stir different things within our hearts. And so why does James emphasize it here? And why does he, he use orphans and widows here? Many commentaries, if you read on James 1.27, they'll say, well, orphans and widows are representative of the neediest of society. So you could really just say it's to care for the poor and the needy. And yet James will talk about the poor and the needy. In other places in his letter. He's very specific. Why? And why is he so specific here that this is pure and undefiled religion? This is it. Come on. And why does he tell us to visit orphans and widows? One ministry that I met in Uganda, it was an American ministry. It was called Visiting Orphans. And they would put teams together and go and visit orphans. They wanted to fulfill and live out James 127. And I kind of would laugh to myself. I thought, you know, it's like, hey guys, how's it going? We're here to visit you. You know, is, it, is, is that what James is talking about? Is it that kind of visiting? And so really for us to, to delve into this and to get the heart of what James is saying, we need to really take a journey together. And that's where I want to lead us in our time uh, this morning is to step back and to just look at the big story of God and to see exactly what is James referring to as we come into this text. When we think about the Old Testament, for many of us, it's easy to picture God as king. And I think we've done a good job in our day of, of really taking the story of God as God as king, and we as his subjects, looking to live with him in his kingdom. And that's right, and it's good, but it's half an image because God has revealed himself as the king who is father. And he has a kingdom children, kingdom people whom he makes sons and daughters. And he will live with those kingdom children forever and ever where we will be at home with God and God at home with his people. And it's a beautiful way to walk through the story and to see them really as they flow together his kingship his fatherhood and as it walks through the story up to Christ and then right to the end of revelation if we had 4 or 5 hours together we would journey that but for for this moment for this time just think with me of the storyline because as God creates Adam and Eve He is the king, and yet he makes Adam and Eve in his image, and he makes them son and daughter of the king who is father, and he puts them into their garden, temple, home. And there are rules and laws and and, and provision and protection, and really Adam is going to image this in his own ministry, in his own life, and as the way that he relates to his wife and will relate to his children. There's a, a foundation there to be built on. As we walk through the story, though, sin turns that upside down. And there is a discipline by the king who is father over his children. But God does not, in the face of sin, remove himself. He comes in, if I can just use the word visits, because you'll see how that imagery will come out later. God shows up, he visits his children, and he comes as king, as father. And he brings with him judgment and salvation. And in that judgment, he proclaims to the serpent what will happen to him and what will happen in the future as the offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And really, as what was done at the fall will be turned upside down. And so, as God proclaims judgment, he also proclaims salvation to come. What a good father! He does not abandon his people. And if you walk through the story, he appears to Abraham and he makes royal and family promises to him. And, and, and in that, he promises to make him a nation. And if we walk through the story, there will be a new home, almost like garden imagery, where he will take his people and lead them into. But before they get there, they spend 400 years in Slavery. In Egypt, we've been reading through Exodus together, and if you just look at Exodus briefly, if you look at Exodus chapter four, we find that in Exodus one through three, the people's lives and these are the offspring of Abraham, who he has made into a great nation, one giant family flowing out from Abraham and his sons Exodus 1 through 3 says that the people's lives had become bitter because of their slavery they groaned and they cried out in their affliction in their bitterness of heart and so here is this image of God's people enslaved so embittered that they are afflicted and they're crying out in that affliction and God does not stay removed. He has a purpose. He has a plan. And at the right time, he hears and he comes down. He raises up Moses. And he talks about a deliverance that will come. And in Exodus chapter four, this is what, or how the people respond in verse 31. It says, And the people believed. And when they heard That Yahweh, the Lord, had visited the people of Israel. He had seen their affliction. And they bowed their heads and they worshiped. God saw their affliction and He visited His people. And He was coming with a judgment and a salvation that would shake the world of its day. Just before that, as God was describing his people Israel, he had said to Moses, this is chapter 4, verse 22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. I'm going to bring judgment against your firstborn son if you think you can hold my firstborn son in slavery. Because God's son will not be left in slavery. God will bring him out of slavery into salvation and ultimately into the family of God, the place where there is freedom from Slavery. What a picture of humanity as we face slavery to sin and death and Satan. And God enters in and He will deliver His people. And this imagery of God as Father over the nation of Israel is consistent through the Old Testament. Around 15 times, God is referred to as Father of the nation. So He saves them, but how? How do you you take a people in bondage, really imaging their own bondage, uh, to sin, uh, to death, to Satan, as Pharaoh with the the serpent on his head is holding them captive? How does he take them from slavery and make them sons and daughters? Well, the answer, I think, is, is most clearly portrayed in the book of Ezekiel. If you have a scripture, you can read with me or you can listen. Ezekiel chapter 16, really, it, here God is speaking to a people in exile. Some are already in exile, some will go into exile. And he's picturing the origin of the nation. He's looking back on when the nation was birthed, if you will, and brought into covenant relationship with God. And he tells them in Ezekiel sixteen, verse four. Well, we could even back up to verse three. He says, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, your mother was a Hittite. And that's I love it when God uses kind of jokey language. It's like it's it's quite fun. Um, you know, that, that would be called a, a cultural slam. All right? I don't know what we'd call it in our, our modern teenage language, but, but God brought it, okay? Um, you think you're something? Your father was a, was a Hittite, or an, an Amorite, and your mother was a Hittite. As for the day of your birth, get this. On the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. And that imagery is loaded culturally because in that day, if, if you gave birth to a child and you didn't cut the cord and you didn't wipe off really the birth blood and you took that child and cast them out, you were relinquishing all legal right and responsibility to that child. A child was not your child. And you would put them out on the open field where they could die, or if a stranger came by that field, passed by and saw that baby and took that baby and cut that cord and cleansed that child, that was legally binding. As an adoption, this is my adopted child. That's yours. And God speaks right into this cultural language, and he says in verse 6, When I passed by you and saw you helpless, wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. Live. How's that for emphasis? You are alive because I spoke live. You are mine because I spoke live and took you. And you flourished. The second half of Ezekiel 16, he's going to talk about, he's going to use the marriage imagery and ultimately how Israel became an unfaithful bride. And yet, it really draws our attention to the reality that God has taken a people. He took them out of slavery. He called them his firstborn son. He spoke live. He cut the cord. He cleansed them. Because he does cleanse his people. And he makes them sons and daughters. And I think when Paul in Romans says of Israel, theirs was the adoption, that's the language. That's what he had in his mind. This is what God does. But then God calls his people to image his saving and adopting grace to them in their own care for the fatherless and the widow among them. Look at Ezekiel 22. Not Ezekiel. Exodus. In Exodus 22, and really we could preach quite a few sermons because this is a rich Old Testament theology, I'm just going to touch on this, but it's crucial for our passage, and I think it's crucial for all of us. In Exodus 22, as God is really unveiling what it means for them to, as Adam, in a sense, imaging the king who is father as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation— as they're imaging God through how they live, he comes in Exodus 22 and he says to them in verse 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I Will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. That's where everybody goes, Whoa! Because if you're listening to these words, they hit hard and heavy. And of course, at the end of this whole book of the covenant, these initial law giving chapters, the people say, All the Lord has spoken, we will do. Why this strong language as God speaks to his people? Well, in the ancient world, it was the boast of the ideal king to defend the fatherless and the widow, but God is the ideal king who is father. And he is the king who is father who himself protects and cares for orphans and widows. And he is the king and father who himself protects and cares for orphans and widows, but he does it through a people imaging his fatherhood, his care. To the point where if they fail to reflect God, to image God, and the fatherless and the widow cry out, God makes it known. He says, my, well, first he says, surely hearing, I will surely hear their cry. The Hebrew is hearing I will hear, right? And, And my wrath, Will burn. I love this Hebrew idiom that they try, you know, we miss it in the English, but it's a great idiom because he actually says, uh, oh, come on, tell me I I put it in here. Maybe I didn't. um, See if I can remember. Uh, uh, My anger will burn. My nose will become hot. Isn't that great? God is going to be pretty upset. And the irony is that the judgment will be that they ultimately, for the men, their wives will become widows. Their children will become fatherless. As they fail to image God, they will become actually the thing that they have failed to take care of. So this is really on the men. It falls hard. It's not only for the men, but it comes directly to the men. This is in line with Deuteronomy 10, where God reveals His name. I won't read it, but He really... Part of his name, as he says who he is, is he is the the defender of the fatherless and the widow. It's part of who he is, Deuteronomy 10.18, if you're taking notes. He reveals later that he is the provider for the fatherless and the widow. He commands his people to leave the edges of their field or the corners specifically so that the fatherless and the widow and others can come and actually eat and have food. Well, that's beautiful, right? Because the very fields of, of... The farmers, they're all farmers, you you get a farm to eat, Um, your field is actually defined by the portion that's for the fatherless. And so, to go and work in your field, you pass through that portion as you go and harvest. You leave the outside. God is the provider, but he provides through his people. And he provides not just in the harvest time, but he provides also when there is no food. And every three years, he commanded them in Deuteronomy 14 that they were to bring the tithe of their produce in the third year and store it up in a storehouse in their town. And that storehouse was so that the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner, the Levites could all come and eat. And this giving of this tithe was so crucial, so important. Nowhere else do you hear this language. In Deuteronomy 14, when they give, or in Deuteronomy 26, when they give this tithe, they actually are to come and say, God, I've done what you've said. I have offered the sacred portion. What great language. So would you bless your people, Israel? And so they're imaging the God who is the provider and protector and defender of the fatherless and the widow. And if they fail... In Deuteronomy 27, one of the 12 covenant curses is actually connected to their mistreatment of or failing or perverting the justice for the fatherless and the widow. And out of those 12 curses, one is specific to the orphan and the widow. And there's a reason. Because this is such a crucial part of who God is and what God has done for his people and what he expects his people to reflect outward. David who loved the law of God and delighted on it and meditated on it day and night was the first to speak clearly what I think we've seen and that's in Psalm 68, 5 when he says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. You know, you see God as the defender, the provider, the protector and and it's like, God, you're the father. It's who you are. You're the father of the fatherless. So if I were to summarize, really, because that's a consistent message. The book of Job, we could go through the prophets. It's over and over and over and over again. would summarize it as the Old Testament reveals the God who is the king father who visits his people, bringing judgment and salvation, and who images this visiting through his people and their care for the fatherless and the widow. And so... Because I didn't mention adopting them into, really, into his people uh, as his children. But that's what we see. And when we come into the New Testament, it's like the, this veil is just pulled back. And what we find is, is suddenly what the Old Testament was imaging is just echoing. It's just being shouted because Jesus comes and he reveals the king who is father. In the book of John alone, God is referred to as father around 118 times. Compare that with 15 cl- clear references in the Old Testament. Jesus is making known the God who is Father. Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll find that as, as Lowell walks through it, you'll see that language of, of both royalty in the kingdom and then fatherhood uh, wed together. Other places, we, we are called children of the kingdom, and I think that's great language. That really ties these together. And in John 14, we find Philip actually saying to Jesus, Jesus, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus' response is quite shocking, because Jesus says, have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, Jesus isn't the Father, but Jesus is the revealer of the Father. And if you want to know what God is like as father, don't look to your earthly dad. You look to Jesus. Earthly dads work made to be a reflection of a greater fatherhood. And that's Ephesians 4. For this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family, from whom every fatherhood, that's the translation and heaven on earth is named. Every fatherhood on earth is derived, is named from the heavenly father. Earthly fatherhood exists because the heavenly father exists, and he made it. And we image that fatherhood. And that could be a whole sermon right there. And so where your earthly father was a good image, that comparative, that's good. That's grace. Because yes, Anything that you loved or delighted in, anything that was good about your earthly dad, you say, thank you. That, 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 that's an image of, of the heavenly father as the good father. Anything that was bad, anything that was hurtful, anything painful from your earthly father, that is meant as a contrast. That is not what God is like. God is not distant. God is not abusive. God is not abandoning. God is not fill in the blank. He is the good and perfect Father. And if you want to know what he's like, look at Jesus. And that's life-changing. And that was life-changing for my friend Ruby. Because she was able to begin to get past her earthly dad and say, Okay, this is what God is like. This is who he is. The Jesus I've loved actually shows me who the Father is, who loves me. Heart began to soften. Jesus came into the world that is in slavery to sin and death and Satan, and as He came, He hears our cries in our affliction, and He's moved with compassion. We see Jesus touching and healing and all that He did. But in Luke seven, after He raises a widow's son, now that's interesting, He raises. A fatherless child. So you have a fatherless, the fatherless and the widow in this image. He raises the fatherless boy from the dead. And you know what is proclaimed? God has visited his people. Wow. The Exodus imagery. Because Jesus is bringing a greater Exodus where he comes and he enters into this brokenness and our sin and this. Bondage to slavery and Satan, and he visits with judgment and salvation. But he does it through giving his life for the people who break the very commandments he's given. Because all of us have failed. We failed what even just in Exodus 22. For the fatherless and the widow, I deserve that judgment. But what's incredible is that God took that judgment and instead of pointing it onto Keith killing me with the sword, He put it onto His son and his son who perfectly fulfilled the law, and who loved orphans and widows, who loved all people, who lived the law, blameless. He took the judgment of God. And the Father gave his only son. we find the Father giving. we find the son saving. So that forgiveness can come to us. So that cleansing can come to these hearts. That we can be washed and renewed in the glories that the gospel proclaims. And Jesus is the way to the Father. And he does this. He meets us as he saves us. And he adopts us into family. And I looked at this a little bit with you as we went through Christ alone as He brings us into family, as He adopts us as His children. It's a glorious truth as He sets us free to call Him Abba, Father, as we gain the inheritance of the children of God. All of us will lose our earthly father sometime. We will never lose the Heavenly Father. He knows what we need before we ask, and it's His delight to give Himself for His people. It's His delight for us not to stay far, but to be brought near. And I just want to highlight the beauty of the adoption that He has given as He has visited us and adopted us into a greater family. To be able to join the cry of Jesus, Abba, Father. That is comfort to the soul. Let's come back into our text as we really come to the end. James 1, pure and undefiled. Religion, Christianity lived out before the God and the Father is this. Visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep yourself unstained from the world. You see, we outflow or image the truth and the hope of the gospel. The saving, adopting King who is Father, outward as we care for orphans in our midst. I think there's a reality of spiritual orphanness. We have a Father outside of Christ who is Satan, but he, He didn't give birth to us. We are estranged from the God who actually is the reason why we exist. I love the song. It says, my orphan heart was given a name because that was me. I was a slave and a spiritual orphan by nature following Satan as my father. But he is a slave master father. He is a usurping father. And as we come, we find God visiting us and then using us to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And this is gospel imagery. And I think that's what James is doing. He's taking all of this Old Testament background and all that is true in Christ, and he's saying, you want to sum it up, here it is. You come in a way that brings salvation, that changes the place that an orphan and a widow finds themselves in in their affliction, in their sin, or in their struggles in life, all the challenges that a fatherless child faces or a widow faces. And we come with the news of the gospel and a father who loves. And we image that in our love, in our care for the fatherless and the widow in our midst. It's an outflow of him. And what's amazing is that through that, we get to see God's fatherhood displayed in our midst. And you know, God is so gracious because in Jesus we do get to know the Father. And and we can engage in a journey with the Father, just walking with Christ. But in His amazing, abundant grace, He has chosen to bring His fatherhood and make it tangible and revealed through imperfect but redeemed fatherhood. Right here, you and me. When Ruby was Discovering the truths of God as father, she, it was like there was a barrier and a disconnect. She kept saying, I know it's true in here. I know it here. I don't know it here. It's almost like God is good to be father to everybody else, but not me. I'm gonna be left behind. I can never be good enough. She was always trying to please her earthly father. She felt like she could never please her heavenly father. It was a barrier for her. She wrote a letter to Laura Beth and I. And as we read the letter and just heard her heart cry, we got together and we sat out on our side porch. And as Ruby was just articulating these barriers in her heart and these struggles and how she wants to know the Heavenly Father, but she just feels so broken in earthly fatherhood. And as she was talking, it's like the Lord just dropped this little thing in my heart. And I just said, Ruby, have you ever been hugged by a a man as a father in a way that's pure, right? I didn't use the word undefiled, but should have. um, In a way that's pure. And she looked at me and she said, no. I was hugged. I remember being hugged by my uncle, but it was gross. And I just said, Ruby, can I hug you? And Laura, we got near. I just took Ruby, just hugged her. And she just started weeping, just weeping. I cried and Laura Beth cried and we just, and we prayed. Lord, what's gonna come from this? It was amazing because through her receiving tangible physical fatherhood and the love of a father who she was safe with, it was like the barrier in her heart broke And she began to experience God as her loving father. And that began her journey of healing, really, in Christ, and to know God as father. And I remember just as she was leaving Uganda, she came to our house. She again sat with us. She goes, this is going to be weird. Can I just ask you this question? And I was like, Ruby, you can ask me anything. She goes, can I just call you Papa? Papa one time? (laughs) I'm like, yes. And she just goes, thank you, Papa. And she, again, just started to cry, and it was like, wow. And you know what was so beautiful? As God set her free from the wounds of broken earthly fatherhood, she went back to India. Her father was very sick, and she, she had forgiven him in her heart, and she began to care for him and love him, and actually God used her to be a vessel of grace to her father for the first time in her life. And it began a, a restoration, really, for her of their relationship. And, and um, you know, and it's had its challenges since that day, but, but what an amazing picture of what God does in us as his body. Brothers and sisters, wherever you are, we have a loving, adopting father who brings. Discipline as a father. Hebrews 12. Loving discipline to his sons and daughters. But always for our good. And always perfect. And he brings salvation. And grace upon grace. And lavished grace. As we journey with him. and As we walk with our risen king Jesus. Through the power of his spirit poured out. That in us is crying Abba Father. And by whom we cry Abba Father. And God in his grace still images his fatherhood through all of us, men and women and children. This isn't just for fathers. As we visit orphans and widows in our midst and around the world with this good news of this great and glorious gospel. The disconnect, the struggle that we can feel to live out what we know is true May God draw our hearts together to journey in him as his body, as we love and care for one another. And each of us have our own journey. I remember when God was teaching these things to me, my wife even said, you know, Keith, I'm glad this is affecting you. Um, I hear you, but it's it's not really stirring me. But what was beautiful was that over the next year, as she just began to walk in the truths that she knew were true, God continued to soften her heart. Um, and to this day, like, I just, I love seeing my own wife's blossoming in her love for her real daddy, her real father, God. Um, and so, may God meet each of us in our journey. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and, and just for your grace to your body, that you are the, the good, good father who is also king And you are a raging fire. You are the holy and great God. And yet in our fear of you, we are drawn near in love because you draw us near, because you have spoken live and you have adopted us into your family. And you've given us the great privilege of reflecting that through adoption and through orphan care and through fostering and and just through loving and adopting orphans into our hearts, caring for widows, in living out this great gospel of this saving God. May we as a body be passionate for these truths. Even as we see them being lived out uh, through Peter and Leanne and through so many others in this body, would you bless them, God? And would you use us as we reflect the God who is Father. As we come to this table, God, thank you that we can gather as your family. We can remember the sacrifice that has cleansed us so that we can live pure and undefiled religion. We can live out that faith to others. Thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.